I'm Teresa Gray, the Executive Director of Mobile Medics International. So what inspired you to create uh, Mobile Medics International? Uh, well, I was traveling doing humanitarian work with another organization, and I went on three trips with them. Um, I went to Haiti, the Philippines, and to the Syrian refugee crisis in Greece. And I noticed that there was sort of a gap in the way that medical humanitarian aid was done. Most places came up, set, a, set up a stationary clinic or hospital, and people that needed uh, medical assistance came to them. Um, but there were lots of people that either couldn't or wouldn't go to that, uh, you know, permanent or semi-permanent structure um, because they were trapped or for, for various different reasons. And so I looked around for an organization that did more mobile medicine that would reach those people. And I couldn't really find one. So I started one. That's how it happened. <laughs> I don't, I didn't want to reinvent the wheel, right? honestly, you know, but I, I knew what I wanted to do. I just couldn't find an organization that did that. So I made one. So can you tell me about your operation? Yeah. So Mobile Medics International does three things. Um, we specialize in refugee crisis. So the Venezuelan walkers coming into Colombia, the Mexican-American border, the Syrian refugee crisis, and most recently, the Ukrainian refugee crisis. We do natural disaster response. So every natural disaster in the last seven years, um, we've responded to, including, again, most recently, the Turkey earthquake. I just got home from a week ago. And then we have a what we call a medical self-sustaining model. So one of the things that we have found in our travels is we would go someplace for either a refugee crisis or a natural disaster, and we would find areas in the world that had little to no access to basic health care. And so what we started was, um, if you will commit to a five-year relationship with us, we will and identify people in your community that would like to be health aides we will take those people and train them all the way from first aid and CPR up to um, you know, modified first responders. We will um, find and procure you a clinic. We will stock it with all the supplies and equipment and we will provide you with all the medications you need. In addition, we will find local healthcare providers that are willing to mentor you in country. So you have someone local and we will provide telemedicine for you. So that's the that's the other thing that we do, because I do not believe that anybody should be reliant on foreign aid for basic health care. I do not believe in going back to someplace year after year after year after year. Um, and COVID was a good example of that. People that were very dependent on medical aid, foreign medical aid or international medical aid during COVID got nothing. So, yeah, that's the other thing that we do. So refugee crisis, natural disaster, and medical self-sustaining. Uh, with Turkey, how was it on the ground? Uh, Turkey was um, exponentially worse than you can imagine. It was horrible. Um, I, I think this, I think Turkey was my 24th or 25th mission in the last six years. I have never seen more death, destruction, and human suffering ever. It was horrible. Well, when you go to situations like that, how do you maintain your mental health during this? 
Well, I've been a paramedic for 30 years. I'm currently a nurse. Um, and in medicine, we do a thing called compartmentalism. So when we're in the middle of it, um, when we're treating people, when we see things that are very emotional, we sort of put that to the side and get our job done. Um, your emergency cannot be my emergency. Your trauma cannot be my trauma, um, right? You want me to be calm and to know my stuff and to get done what needs to be done. That's what you're counting on me for. And so that's what we do. Afterwards, as a team, we do a nightly debriefing. Let's talk about what we saw. Let's talk about what we did. Let's talk about what we smell and heard and um, and just sort of get it all out. And then two weeks after every mission, um, I personally call everybody that was on the team and check in with them um, emotionally. How are you doing? Um, you know, did you, you know, are you having trouble sleeping? You know, just mental health check. And then we also have a licensed um, psychologist on staff that um, everybody has access to anonymously. So they can call him, they can email him, and he will touch base with them. So um, we try really hard to debrief in the moment and then follow up. And, and so that's sort of how you deal with it, compartmentalize it, but then it's really important to deal with it and get those feelings out. What are some of the differences you see from natural disasters like Turkey to uh, Ukraine, where it's been going on for over a year now? Yeah. Um, well, each response is very unique. So a natural disaster um, is like a sudden trauma no, that nobody was really expecting. Nobody saw it coming, usually caught unaware, um, you know, just massive amounts of destruction and, and death and dying and injuries. And, and then they end up um Honestly, after a natural disaster, you sort of end up with a refugee crisis, right? Or a displaced people's crisis. And so the end result ends up being very similar. They're in tents, they're in camps, they're in stadiums, you know, all living together collectively. For a refugee crisis, um, those, they're not really planned. Those two can be very sudden and very disruptive. And you end up with the same sort of psychological trauma, um, as well as medical issues, um, you know, for people having to flee their homes. So emotionally, they're sort of a little bit different, but the end result ends up kind of being the same. Anytime someone is forced from their home for any reason, disaster, war, you know, having to flee, you know, government, whatever, um, it, it's always traumatizing. And it always ends up with large groups of people in a singular area. You said you're, you've been in the medical field for a long time, even before yeah. mobile medics. What, uh, how did that journey start? Uh, so I was a paramedic for over 30 years. I still am a licensed paramedic um, for well over 30 years at this point. And I've done rural Metro. I was a SWAT medic for a police department wow. in my young, in my younger days. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've done fixed wing medicine. I've done uh, helicopter medicine. You know, I've just, I, I used to own the paramedic schools here in the state of Alaska for a number of years before I sold them to the university. So I sort of had a, uh, you know, a myriad of, of, you know, uh, exposure to um, my paramedicine career. And it started 
in my early 20s, I'm wanting to say I was about 22 years old, my godparents were both paramedics for a local ambulance service. And when I was 12 or 13, they used to take me with them when they went to class to either teach or learn something. And sometimes I would be the mock victim. And, and so when I graduated high school, there was a local community college doing an EMT class. And I'm like, all right, well, I'll go do EMT. And, and that was it. I never looked back, you know, 30 plus years later, I'm still a paramedic. Well, I saw on your website, you put uh, the article that you uh, were a part of the CNN Heroes in 2022. Congratulations, yes. by the way, Thank that you. is a big honor. But Thank when you. you when you first started, did you think what you're doing would have the impact as it, at, as it has? No, no, I didn't. We started, uh, so uh, probably six or seven years ago now, like I said, I was with another organization and we were helicoptered into a Southern part of Haiti after a hurricane and they dropped us off and we found this abandoned house with no windows, um, no electricity, no running water, but it had a roof and a floor close enough. <laughs> so, so we sort of made our team house there and we were uh, servicing a local orphanage and the surrounding village. Um, and then one night after we got home, after a day of clinic, um, there was five of us and we were sitting around talking and, um, somebody said, I think that you should, I was, I was saying, you know, I wish we could get into some of these other villages. Like nobody has been here. And someone said, well, you should probably start an organization that does that. And that's where it started. That's where MMI started is on that, um, porch in Haiti, um, eating MREs with the group. So those five people for the first two years, it was just us. It was just the six of us. There's no way that I would have anticipated or could have predicted, honestly, like sort of what uh, mobile medics has grown into. I'm also very cognitive of what I don't want it to grow into. Yeah. I ne yeah, I never want it to be so big that it's hard to manage and control. I want us to be, um, you know, our stuff to be in backpacks. I want us to be able to travel. I want us to be able to get into the barrios in the mountains of Puerto Rico on the backs of donkeys or the islands in the Philippines in a really suspect bamboo boat, right? Um, so I, so no, honestly, that was kind of a long answer to, I had no idea sort of what it is, uh, morphed into, but it's very exciting. Wow. Burrows. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. We've taken donkeys and pig trucks and goat trucks and motorcycles and horses and, um, yeah, you name it. We've been on it and, and rickety little bamboo catamaran boats, um, three hours into the ocean across, you know, to an Island in Philippines, but yeah, it's, it's an adventure. What motivates you? Um, what motivates me is knowing that there are people out there that um, we can make a difference for that otherwise would have gotten no treatment. So Turkey, for instance, our most recent mission, we ended up in the Hatay province, which is right on the Syrian border. In the bigger towns, um, that was all sort of epicenter, but in the bigger towns close to the epicenter, everybody was there. You know, all the, the food NGOs and NGO means, means um, 
um, non-governmental organizations, so basically volunteers. So the food NGOs and the medical NGOs and the search and rescue teams from all over the world, the world showed up for Turkey. And then I started looking, because this is what we do, out farther away from the epicenter, but still highly affected areas. And there was nobody there. And so what motivates me is knowing that um, we, on day four, post-earthquake, we were in those areas where people were still trapped in the rubble, but there was not enough search and rescue teams to get to them, where um, people had injuries that had not been treated. So what motivates me is knowing that there are vulnerable people in remote areas that likely won't get seen or very late will get seen just because of demographics. When you have a disaster on that scale, it's hard to get everywhere. So, you know, we try to get there. So just talking to you, I, I realize how, you know, empathetic you are with helping all these people. How important is something like empathy in these situations? Probably 90% of what we do is psychological first aid. So people want to tell their story. People need to speak their trauma as part of their healing process. And remember, they're still in the middle of it. I'm going to be there for 10 days and two weeks, and I'm going to come back to my house with running water and electricity, and I'm going to be warm and I'm going to be fed. And they're still going to be living in a tent, not sure, sure where, um, you know, food is coming from for breakfast for their children. So they, they need to speak their trauma. They need someone to listen and they need to know that um, someone sees them and cares about them and is there for them. And so, like I said, 90% of what we do is psychological first aid. I will sit and have tea with you. Tell me your story. Tell me how scared you were. Let me hold your hand. Let me give you a hug. Um, you know, and, and let me, let me, you know, clean up that little wound for you and put a bandaid on it. That's almost secondary, quite frankly, but yeah, tell me your story. Cause I'm here for you. You know, I came, I came all this way specifically for you and your family. So what can we do for you? And we don't just do medicine. If we find that they've got no water, the baby has no diapers, there's no formula. Um, because this is not my first um, earthquake or disaster. It's their first earthquake or, or hurricane or whatever. I know who the players are. I know where they are. I know how to get food, water, diapers, formula to this area so I can start making calls. So we try to, you know, sort of holistically look at the bigger picture. What can we do for these people in this moment? Where are the resources aside from medical? Because medicine doesn't matter if you're hungry and thirsty and food and water don't matter if you are really sick. So they need to, they sort of need to go together. So so where do you want to see the organization in the next three to five years? Um, I would like to see it um, probably just a little bit bigger than it is. Right now, we said one team at a time. And I'm I'm starting to see over the last couple of years, we'll see, um, you know, concurrent disasters. <laughs> like I was in Puerto Rico for that hurricane when the hurricane hit Florida. And so... Because we only send one team at a time, we wrapped up Puerto Rico and ended up going to Florida. 
Um, so I'd like to be able to have the, quite frankly, the money and, and the resources because I have the personnel, all of my medical people are volunteer and we are 100% funded by donations. So I would like to be able to have the, the money and the resources to send out more than one team at a time. So how can people reach out and donate? Um, so we are on all the social media, um, you know, on, on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Um, uh, you know, uh, we have a website, mobilemedicsinternational.org. So any of those places will have um, the ability for people to like click a link in and donate. You can also, um, if you choose to like sign up for our monthly newsletter, because one of the things that's really important to me is because we are donation driven, I understand the significance of, you know, the little old lady digging in her um, pocketbook and handed me $20. I understand the significance of writing a check for and sending it in the mail to our address for $50. I understand the impact of an organization donating $10,000. And so what they're actually saying is, we trust you. We trust you to do the right thing. We trust you to use this money wisely. We trust you to help as many people as you can with this. And so to that end, we um, have developed a monthly newsletter to show people where their donations go, because I think it should be 100% transparent where every dime goes. When you send me that $20, you do not expect that to um, you know, pay for you know, some extraneous thing. Like you want those Ukrainian refugees to benefit from that. You want the people of Turkey to benefit from that. So we show you what we do with your money. I think that that's is important. important. A lot of people mm -hmm. think that like, what is it going to? Yeah. And, and we show you, it doesn't go to admin fees um, because we don't have any, it doesn't pay our volunteers because they don't get paid. Um, you know, it doesn't, it, it literally goes exactly where I'm hoping that you wanted it to go. So I, I do think that's important because if, if they trust us, um, enough to hand us, you know, five bucks, that's, that's significant. It, it's significant. It means that $5 is, you know, means a lot. And we're going to, I just want to say, uh, thank you for, taking the time to talk to me and sharing your story and what you're doing is, you know, amazing helping people, especially in areas where other people don't go to. Yeah. Um, thank you for allowing me to tell Emma my story. Um, I'm really, really proud of our volunteers. Um, the amount of, I mean, it's, it's pretty significant when you send out a WhatsApp to a bunch of doctors and nurses and anesthetists and pharmacists and say, Hey, um, can you guys get on a plane and fly to Turkey tomorrow? And they say, yes. Um, I realize that they're walking away from their jobs, that they're, you know, burning up vacation time, that they're, you know, whatever, rearranging their lives, you know, leaving their kids, missing birthdays and bar mitzvahs and all kinds of things. Um, they are amazing human beings, you know, so I sort of am technically the face and the voice of MMI, but honestly, they do most of the work. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, with the sign of a good leader, I know how to delegate. Yeah. So, um, 
Yeah. So I have the most amazing group of, of volunteers and I love talking about them and what they do and, and what they provide to people. Um, I'm really proud of them. And we, if you are medically licensed in any country, because our volunteers come from five of the seven continents, um, if you are medically licensed in any country, then you can apply to to uh, travel with MMI and go on responses. So, how is that process of you know, like say Turkey, and then calling people saying, "Let's get there." Like they're ready to drop everything. They are ready to drop everything. So I was actually playing a board game with my daughters and um, my medical director who lives in New Mexico um, texted me and said, are we going to Turkey? And I said, what what happened in Turkey? Like I I was completely unplugged from everything. And so then I researched it and I'm like, yes, yes, we're going to Turkey. And it started from that instant. So uh, what happens is logistically, there's a bunch of stuff to do. So you don't just show up in somebody's country, right? You have to have permission to be there. We bring in a full pharmacy. So we have to make sure that we have permission to bring in the medications and that they don't get stopped at customs. And, you know, it's all checked baggage. But, you know, once you hit Turkey and, you know, borders, customs and borders sometimes gets hinky. So you have to have permission for all of that. And that's sometimes really hard to get, obviously, in the middle of a crisis. Um, so I start working all of that. I throw out, um, a notification on WhatsApp and say, Hey, we need to get to Turkey as soon as possible. Cause the key is to get there as quickly as possible. The challenge is the airports don't always open right away. So we actually looked at flying into bordering countries and driving in, um, which we have done before. We, we will land outside a hurricane area and drive into it, um, just because the airports aren't open, but this one, we happened to the Adana airport opened up enough. We could get in. So I'll send out a WhatsApp. All of my volunteers are on the WhatsApp. I have about a hundred. They're all on the WhatsApp. And I say, we're going to go to Turkey. I anticipate we're going to leave on this date. And I anticipate we're going to be home on this date. If you're coming from the United States, it's about 40 hours to get there. I live in Alaska. So I'm usually the the longest travel and the last one to get there. (laughs) Yeah. So it's about 40 hours. So I kind of give them as much information as I know. And then everybody will start texting me. I can go, I can go, I can go. And I take that entire list of people who said they can go. I decide the size of team that we need. Do we need four? Do we need six? Do we need eight? Rarely do I take more than eight because I like everybody to fit in a single vehicle if possible because vehicle and gas is hard to find. I also am pretty adamant about when we go into disaster areas, we need to be completely self-sustaining. You need to bring all your own food for the entire deployment. You need to bring um, a tent and a sleeping bag and a way to purify water because we will not stress the already stressed out infrastructure of the country that we're going into. I am not going to take beans and rice out of a a pot that's feeding a a neighborhood. Like I, I'm, I'm not doing it. You, you will bring your own food. So everybody brings their. It's extreme camping. <laughs> um. So we are completely self-sufficient. So we don't take away from from these people. So I decide the size of the team. I look at everybody that volunteered. I pick my team, and then I send it over to my travel coordinator. 
And we have an organization that supplies us with um, free tickets. They specifically fly um, NGOs to disaster areas. So she works on um, getting everybody Turkey. I had a doctor from Malaysia. I had a paramedic from London. I had a nurse anesthetist from Missouri and me from Alaska. So she coordinates getting us all in the same place at the same time. Um, also getting us, you know, if we have to go into a major city and drive in, like finding us a, um, a hotel room where everybody can wait until I show up. It's usually me. I'm usually the last one in. So everybody, she'll get everybody a hotel room for a night, um, or an Airbnb, or sometimes we've even slept in people's garages, um, until we're all together as a team. She rents, she finds us a car, you know all of the logistics, all of the travel stuff, we all get in country and um, we start the mission. And usually what starting the mission means is we actively search for people that are really remote or have not had access to um, help at that point. So we start asking around, we start making phone calls, we start driving around, we start asking officials, what towns have you not been to yet? Where where have you not been able to send resources? And then we drive there and see if they need us. And if they don't, we drive to the next place. So, but we always find the reason that we're there. We always find it. Has the evolution of technology help uh, be ready faster? Absolutely. It has definitely helped us be ready faster. WhatsApp is amazing because it can be used worldwide. Right. So um, I, I have since found out now that I travel the world that um, the United States is one of the very few places that you have unlimited talk and text as a, as kind of a standard. Yeah. The rest of the world has to still pay for texting or calls or buy a plan or whatever. WhatsApp is free for everybody. Right. It doesn't count as a text. So what so that kind of technology, um, being able to be on a WhatsApp, being able to be on a travel thread, um, it's all great for planning the missions or finding out what's going on in the world. It all goes out the window when you get into the disaster zone because nothing works. There's no cell signal, there's no Wi-Fi, there's no so we have old-fashioned well, they're not old fashioned, but we have radios that have a three mile radius, you know, like you see police wear or firefighters wear, you know, with the mic clip. And so it's all about the technology till we get into the disaster zone. And then literally we were on walkie talkies from that point because none of our stuff works anymore. Right. 